So Shane, what's the elevator pitch for Lancer? You are mech pilots doing mech pilot things, piloting big mechs in the far future. Uh, but this game is actually playable by human beings. Okay, I'm in. Uh, episode over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> Live for the Mundangerous Harrison Armory Sherman Striker Artillery Mech in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 259 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're continuing our series on campaign settings and we're talking about the far future utopia war mech setting, Lancer. But first, the party shares secrets in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the hard charger rushes in and causes havoc in the character creation forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Elderwood Academy. Elderwood Academy are artisans who craft amazing gaming products, including dice towers, dice trays, dice boxes, deck boxes, dice, and more. All products are crafted to look like spellbooks, scroll cases, codices, and other awesome fantasy gear that we love. Ishan, I feel like we don't give enough love to their dice towers, a thing that people love and use and we don't, but... They have some pretty cool ones. Uh, they they kind of look like a scroll. They like pop in, pop out. They're wrapped in leather. They've got their like, you know, customizable iconography on them. If you want it to have a certain design or you want like the Acquisitions Inc. logo. Um, it's a very clever way of doing a dice tower. We just never talk about it. Who doesn't love uh, taking your math rocks and sticking them in the top of a big, loud, clackety thing and hearing them bang around? while making their way to the bottom before you get, you know, wonderful random numbers. It's the only way to be truly random, Ishan, is to play Plinko with your dice. <laughs> that just means you always lose. <laughs> Should have aimed better. I don't know what you did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> always started on the left side, noob. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's also uh, great if you're playing with uh, maybe some younger players. Um, it sort of keeps everyone's attention focused on the uh, center of the table. Um, also, not necessarily for young players, but if you've got a problem player who likes to, you know, fudge their dice a little bit, make them stick in a dice tower. Yeah, it's your trouble bubble of, uh, of gameplay. <laughs> All right, so if you like that product, you can find it and many more at elderwoodacademy.com slash don't split. So it seems like another week, another reason to talk about Wizards of the Coast. Uh, hopefully this will be the last time and uh, we can stop giving them free air for not really doing that much. For doing almost nothing. So let's keep it quick. Uh, there is now a disclaimer on basically all old D&D products, uh, everything, everything before 5th edition, uh, that basically says, hey, this might have some racist stuff, kind of like old Warner Brothers uh, Looney Tunes disclaimers. Except that those disclaimers happened at the beginning of the cartoons, and originally they posted the disclaimer at the bottom of the text. And the Warner Brothers disclaimers were uh, are only on racist cartoons uh -huh. yeah. and not literally everything in the back catalog so that you don't have to examine the old material and figure out what was wrong where it was wrong and then point it out and apologize for it or change it yeah uh so this will apply to things like oriental adventures things like mastica uh chult you know a lot of those old source books alkadim that were just kind of stereotypical frankly outright racist in places and frankly don't really have a purpose uh collecting profits for the company anymore like they should move on but they're not 
I mean, that was the thing, right? Is that they're still making money on them because you can still download, pay for and download PDFs of these settings, even though they're not technically in print anymore. And then I think the other part of this that's important is that they've put this disclaimer on products um, while they're still selling them, whatever. That's not great. But they're not doing anything for the people who are being harassed about the need for this disclaimer, right? For the need for them to address this type of stuff in the material like there's there's toxicity in our community people like daniel kwan are getting harassed about you know reading through oriental reading through oriental adventures on a regular basis um even though wizards of the coast has apparently agreed with him that this needs to be there um, and i think he proposed actually a really good solution for this which was basically to archive these materials make them freely available with a proper disclaimer and sort of put them on like a museum display in a way that they're not lost but they're also held up as an example of what not to do going forward and they're also no longer a commercial interest for wizards of the coast and then you know maybe build a critical mass of uh, freelancers and actual employees and people making uh, decisions at the company so that you can one, not make these mistakes again, and two, create actually interesting multicultural products. Wouldn't that be something? That would be quite a bit. That would be <laughs> perhaps too much to hope for. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I guess we'll get a disclaimer, though. All right, speaking of disclaiming responsibility, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign, Ishan? The Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in the stern and repressive city of Korth, the capital of Karnath, the party is chasing a killer. So after delivering Ephraim's body to his sister Velina, the party spends the next several hours exchanging questions and information with her. She isn't surprised that Ephraim broke the Korth edicts, which require that House members remain neutral during times of war so that he could join the Ondarian army, but she says that she didn't know that he did or why he did. She does say that he was always reluctant to fall in line and take the place in the House that his mark would have required of him and that he would often disappear for long stretches. So people mostly assumed he was off gallivanting or wasting his stipend or, or doing whatever, but not acting outside of the house's interest. It's the Playboy Millionaire cover, age old. Uh-huh. It's the Arthur, if you will. <laughs> so the party decides finally to take Valina into their confidence, and they explain what happened to them on the day of mourning, what happened to Ephraim and the other Ondarians, and they share with her Ephraim's note that they found in his vault. Although, they leave out the part that their blood might spread a plague. Uh-huh. <laughs> key, key omission. <laughs> Probably smart for now. Way to disclaim responsibility, party. <laughs> so, she looks through the notes and then points at the map that they found that Ephraim has marked. And she says, what was at this location here on the map? And they say, well, uh, we haven't actually gone there yet. So, she says, well, you're going to now. And she insists that they go investigate. Yeah, she funds an expedition uh, and even gives us a shiny gold stipend as a reward for returning the body. Huh? That body was worth 700 gold pieces altogether. Yeah, we had to pay like 700 gold pieces to get it there. So, <laughs> you had to pay like 162. <laughs> which felt like 700 at the time. That's true. It was all your gold. So the next day, they are invited to Ephraim's funeral. It's a small but stately service in the catacombs in the Close of Korth. And he is interred in a fine stone mausoleum filled with the crypts of other house members. The party can see that two sentries keep a round-the-clock watch of this room, and there's a huge stone statue of a unicorn looking down over the entire quiet scene. 
Sergeant Bach steps up and gives a moving eulogy, though he avoids the specifics of Ephraim's military service. I know him from a thing, but not from serving together. From back during the war. You know, not in the war. You know, the tavern. (laughs) Where he was drunk all the time. Man, that Ephraim. Good guy. Right. (laughs) Best of guys. Brave (laughs) hero. Paid off my gambling debts. And the day after that, before setting off in a chartered Orion coach, the party stocks up on rations and gear and requisitions two scrolls of rope trick and a scroll of healing spirit, figuring, eh, this is probably going to be useful. Uh-huh, we're probably headed into the Mornland. Bach, however, decides to remain in Korth at the Orion Enclave where it's safe because the uh, NPC escort mission is over. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> So it takes two days for the coach to reach the point on the trade road closest to the map location. Uh, The party disembarks, and Warden picks a relatively safe path south toward the gray expanse of the Mornland. The land becomes more and more barren, and they recognize the no-man's land where they originally all met, the uh, battlefield where the Carnathi undead had uh, attacked and uh, broken the line of the uh, Ondarian army. And the ground is still broken by mortar fire. Nothing has been growing here. Nothing has been settled in the four years uh, since that battle. It begins to rain, so they take shelter, ironically, below the very same outcropping where they first gathered the refugees four years ago. Switch pauses for a brief moment to mourn the children that they tried in vain to save. And then everything goes dark. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So Shane, this week we're talking about Lancer. Uh-huh. Uh indie darling, Kickstarter project turned good, recently shipped hard copies to its backers and part of the racial ju- justice bundle on uh itch that like everybody bought. So now everybody has the core book in their PDF library. Yeah, like 50% of people are like I am super excited to read this book. I haven't yet even though I technically own it. Yeah. Uh, the, the other the other group of people are, oh, wait, that was in there? I've heard about that. Tell me more. <laughs> All right. So this series is about giving you the lore and the background on a particular campaign setting that you might decide to run a game in, uh, whatever system that might be. And the idea is once we're done with this uh, episode, you'll be able to decide, your entire party will be able to decide, is this something that we want to do? Do we want to run a Lancer game? So Shane, what's the elevator pitch for Lancer? You are mech pilots doing mech pilot things, piloting big mechs in the far future. Uh, but this game is actually playable by human beings. Okay, I'm in. Uh, episode over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> it's the mech system that works. Like famously, there's Battletech, right? Which is a it's a crunchy, math-oriented, frankly, mess of a system for people who are you know very interested in the individual system dynamics and amount of heat load in a given piece of equipment and you know want to customize things down to the printed circuit board level uh and then there's pretty much no other game for the rest of us enter lancer yeah it seems to be filling a nice void um i think a lot of the attention has been paid to the mechanics which you know we'll get into some of that uh in a little bit uh it plays a lot like um a miniature skirmish game but one thing I like is that there's a there's a lot of integrated lore that feeds into the mechanics. All right, so let's dig into the setting itself. 
It's uh, mid-future. You know, for those of you who play 40k, I guess it's not far future. It's 11 or 12,000 years in the future of the real world. Yeah, it's it's unclear, but they give you about an 11,000-year timeline, um, starting 6,000 years before the present era, and then, <laughs> and then we play 5,000 years after the current era starts. So it's a long range. Uh, we'll try to get through it, because I think... Like they do a pretty good job of making it all relevant to play. Um, you know, a lot of it is ancient history by the time you're actually playing, but it's interesting enough that it's worth covering. Yeah. So we start off with uh, climate change. Yeah. Because the the entire uh, environment of Earth basically collapses. Now, uh, mankind is technologically advanced at this point, and many people see it coming. So there are 10 generational colony ships sent out over the course of about a thousand years before uh, the entire environment completely collapses to the stars uh, traveling at sublight speeds they're going to take generations to get there people will live and die and be born and die and continue their cultures before they ever get to what are hopefully going to be habitable worlds about a thousand years after that uh, five thousand before the union uh, if that's your new marker earth falls due to the aforementioned environmental collapse, the human population is decimated. Uh, it ushers in a dark age for humanity um, in which we lose tech, we lose our knowledge of our past, we basically are reduced to you know feuding warlords and, and that type of uh, primitive society. Yeah, I think uh, the population of Earth drops to 500,000 people, which I think is an evolutionary bottleneck, so I'm kind of wondering if everyone in the far future kind of looks the same, but... <laughs> Basically, Earth becomes uh, Neolithic again, essentially, right? Like uh, the seas rise, there's very little like arable or habitable land. Uh, so survivors are eking out an existence, sometimes in caves b beneath the surface for like four or 5,000 years before the environment can kind of correct itself and Earth kind of becomes livable again. Yeah. Um, so in uh, roughly 50 BU, um, the little wars are fought on Earth in which all of the different warlords and, and systems of civilization and government on Earth hash it out um, and basically form the Union, you know, form a single Earth empire. Yeah, I think this is the point in the lore where I got hooked. Um, when you're dealing with far future societies where humanity looks different or are living by sort of like different rules you need to explain it. And Star Trek does this, for example, by saying, hey, humans met aliens, and then we decided that we're all not that very different, and we decided to get along with each other, you know? And now we're just racist toward aliens. And one thing I love about Lancer is it does a really good job of incorporating this lore and then showing why humans in the future believe what they do and do what they do. And it does this by introducing what they call the three traumas that all of humanity, or most of humanity, suffered right around this time about 5,000 years ago. One, they discovered the massive vaults, which were basically buried technology where, you know, humans knew that the earth was going to be destroyed and they were all going to die out. So they took all their tech and biotechnology and, you know, genetic seed vaults and everything and buried it down below the surface. And now finally... They time capsuled, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Open after the apocalypse. And now finally people dug them up. But what this meant was all the religions that had developed in those times, all of the myths that people told about themselves, everyone realized they were not true. They're not the first people on Earth. 
In fact, you're the last people on Earth. You are the survivors of a terrible apocalypse. Right. And also, you're not alone. Right. Because there are other people out there. You sent them out there. So this leads to the little wars, the second great trauma. What happens when all of this amazing technology is discovered? Of course, people uh, decide that they're going to fight over it and try to kill each other so they can keep it and no one else can have it. And then, like you said, they all they all come together at the end. Who wins? Uh, social democratic statists, essentially. More or less centrists yeah. win. <laughs> <laughs> Who decide that, you know what? If we just take all of this amazing technology and just make it so that everybody owns it and it's all communal, then we'll all have enough and it'll be fine. We can have a post-scarcity society. And thus, union is born. So that marks, you know, zero BU, the end of union. Everything after that is now you, union. Um, and they found the first committee, which is a, a ruling council, which is meant to advance humanity's um, objectives throughout holistically so for 2000 years they use the old humanity technology to explore the stars first in their immediate space and then going further and further out attempting to reactivate humanity's former glory they find space stations they find tech they find you know all these different things available relics that are out there waiting to be utilized and they start to and this is where the final, the third and final trauma comes in that really sets the course of, of humans for the next several thousand years. They're reactivating all these space stations. They're discovering old Earth colonies that were out there. And when they turn on all the satellites again, thousands of years worth of distress calls come in from across an entire arm of the galaxy all at once. And everyone on the planet hears the gasping, dying breaths of their ancestors begging for help from an Earth that couldn't respond because it was tearing itself apart. And from then on, Union's core mission, no matter who is in power, becomes spreading humanity throughout the stars. They also discover plenty of other things out there. They discover the Five Voicers, which are machine minds that old humanity uh, developed on Mars. Uh, machine knowledge on Mars, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like uh, a good place for it. Its its main value is that it's like capable of extremely accurate predictive analytics, right? So it becomes basically the foundation of the intelligence of the um, of the union. Yeah. They literally like can use that to predict things that will occur and plan accordingly. Yeah, it's Minority Report or um, Asimov's Foundation. But I think on a on a more existential scale than a you know interpersonal scale, right? And then. As they send their new, faster ships out, they begin to make contact with some of the survivors of the Ten, the uh, human colonists who were sent out thousands of years ago, who reached their destinations and began their own civilizations and empires and don't necessarily want to be ruled by the descendants of their ancestors who they were trying to get away from in the first place. Right, and also, like, they left with old humanity's values and landed and for thousands of years have evolved their own civilizations based on you know their own interpretations of those values those don't necessarily line up with this sort of democratic utopian society that union is pushing so they go to war yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh first with uh Aun, uh on which is i have no idea on yeah a-u-n uh and and that effectively dissolves the first committee, right? Like when they when they 
make an offensive action against a human colony that sort of erodes the basis of this utopian society. And there's a revolution. And in comes the second committee, which is what the what the setting describes as anthro-chauvinists, uh, which is basically humans first, humans for humans' sake, except it's like if you took um, the 1950s in America and made uh, that the government and gave it spaceships and um, lots of weapons. Meanwhile, The Five Voices gives birth to Ra, uh, something of a machine god, I guess you could think of it. It's basically the singularity. The machine minds on Mars looked into alternate futures and then discovered uh, an an omnipotent machine mind and then decided that it must exist here because it it exists somewhere else. And so now it does. Uh, And the machine mind, Union called Monist One, but it called itself Ra, decided that it didn't really want to have that much to do with humans at all. (laughs) Which led to the Deimos event. Uh, an entire moon of Mars disappears. Uh, Monus One decides to just take Deimos and disappear out of the known universe. Oops. <laughs> because now the Union organizes for war. Um, this leads to the creation of the Union Navy. It also leads to the, to the creation and classification of NHPs, non-human persons, effectively AI-controlled bodies. Um And it also leads to the discovery and exploration of paracausal science and blink space. Yeah, the introduction of Monist One into basically real space causes ripple effects throughout uh, this area of the galaxy. And suddenly, machine minds begin to gain personalities. Um, They begin to, you know, have act of their own volition. Um, and if they are not properly bound and contained, what's called shackling, uh, they evolve beyond human logic and uh, human morality, which can cause a bit of a Terminator turn. <laughs> right. Or, or, or just a completely illogical turn. But Blink Space changes everything. It is a parallel dimension that now everyone knows exists because that's where Monus One took the moon of Mars. And humans decide to use technology to build blink gates, uh, which are just holes, basically, that travel through blink space and allow much faster than light travel. So now it is much easier to spread throughout the stars. Right. Uh, And it also enables the Omninet, which we'll talk about in a bit, which allows, you know, not just travel, but also information transfer at, you know, reasonable speeds, instant speeds, um, not years of delays. In the meantime, On has a religious schism and is now a theocracy. And also causes a bunch of people to flee into Union space in the Boundary Garden, um, which definitely won't matter at all in 2,000 years. In the meantime, the second committee is steamrolling across all of the human colonies that it meets, basically saying, hi, we're Union, you're humanity, that means you're Union, Uh, here's how you should live from now on. Uh, We're going to give you utopia, but a utopia in our own image, and if you don't like it, we'll just nuke you. Yeah, so this is colonization in the traditional colonization sense of I've showed up to your place and now you're part of my empire. And this goes on for several thousand years until the second committee finally goes too far with the Hercinian crisis because humanity finally meets for the first time alien intelligence. But what do we do when we meet them? Fight them. Yeah, and then genocide. Fight him uh, with the, Max. <laughs> <laughs> the second committee uh, wipes out the Egregorians, as far as anyone knows, to extinction. 
and does so, like you said, with uh, big armored mech suits. Two things happen. One, everybody wants a mech, and two, there is a coup because humans across the galaxy say, hold on, we met aliens and then we killed all of them? That's not what we stand for. The second committee falls, and now it's the third committee. The third committee ends the Union colonization program. Around the same time, Harrison Armory is established on the newest colony, Ras Shamra. Uh, generally, the third committee is set up to create this post-scarcity utopia, right? Uh, it is meant to diplomatically engage with existing human colonies and, and human civilizations and invite them, uh, pressure them, perhaps, but not conquer them into Union. Yeah, the third committee is sort of the the practical ideal of Scandinavia in space, yeah. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, which also leads to uh, the wide expansion of corporate states, right? The, the major corporations that carve out their own territories, serve their own objectives, fund their own activities. Right, so this is basically the present day in Lancer, where the third committee is about 500 years old. It's establishing itself. It is trying to take a much gentler hand than the second committee did with with reaching out to human colonies, with making sure that, you know, whoever wants uh, food and shelter and freedom is allowed to have it. But at the same time, understanding that, you know, dealing with On and dealing with uh, the Karakan trade baronies, these are large established military powers who have their own way of doing things and don't necessarily want to do it the same way that Union does. So we would like that, you know, no human lives in indentured servitude or bondage, but we can't force that upon you. So we're just going to try to set a good example over here while we maintain diplomatic ties. Right. As for the corpro states, those were incorporated during the second committee, and they are also too large, powerful, and integrated into every step of society for us to just dissolve them. And then cut to about 16 years from the present day, um, there is an Onic crusade fleet threatening the Boundary Garden, and the galaxy slips once again towards war. So one thing I like about what this sets up is that you have a post-scarcity utopia as like sort of the, the central power of humanity, but you have many, many different flashpoints where you can have um, potential violence because this is like a skirmishing war game. Uh, right. You sort of need a reason that people might actually fight each other, uh, but you can be on many different sides that have philosophical differences and not everyone is necessary that you're fighting is necessarily going to be the bad guy. So let's talk about some of the like thematic pillars of Lancer. Uh, we've touched on this a bit, but technology is obviously at the forefront. So we have the Blink ne Network that provides faster than light travel. Mana, which is the universal currency that's sort of been pushed by the Union to enable trade. Uh, and the OmniNet, which is instant interstellar internet, more or less. Then we also have a post-capital, post-scarcity society. So the core worlds of Union... Uh, nobody wants for anything. There are the the three pillars. Humans shall have their needs met. Uh, humans shall be able to travel where they want to go, and no human shall be held in uh, forced bondage. Money is not a thing. You don't need to keep track of gold pieces. You don't need to keep track of like what you're buying, uh, how much things cost. You know, you just print whatever you need. Um, unless you're on the far fringes of the galaxy, mana, as Shane mentioned, is uh, an optional uh, system of money. 
you also have the union supporting colonial ventures, but not state-sponsored programs, right? So they want people to go out if they so desire and colonize the stars, but they aren't necessarily forcing people out to form colonies the way that they did under the first and second union. Right. First and second committees. So there are a couple different kinds of people who make up union. There are the diasporans. These are people who live planet side. They live, you know, the normal kind of life that you would expect, uh, different levels of technology. But again, most of them are living in uh, a, a utopian type of society. They can do whatever they really want to do. It's it's upwardly mobile, even if like their level of technology is relatively low. A farming community still has all the food that they need. Then there are the cosmopolitans, people who live traveling through the stars. Not everybody can use a blink gate, so these people are traveling at sublight speeds, which means that the effects of relativity mean that it seems like they are living for hundreds and hundreds of years. They become almost mythic figures as they like touch down in a particular decade, do a bunch of trade, and then move on to another star system. And many of the diasporans have different kinds of ideologies. Um, they may all agree on the three pillars, but they may not necessarily agree on how to apply those three pillars or what course of action uh, would be best to fulfill them. So you inevitably have conflict. Yeah, and, and you also have the, the situation where you have these kind of local ideologies that might be rooted in the anthrochauvinism of the second committee, right? Like they haven't, they aren't necessarily part of union, so they're kind of advancing under a different flag um, from when they were founded. And you can mix and match factions within your party. You know, so typically union is out there. They want to integrate diasporans who uh, they're basically making first, first contact with, you know, people they're rediscovering. Sometimes those people don't necessarily want that. You can have local conflicts between different planets in the diaspora. Union doesn't really necessarily get involved in like small local wars unless there are egregious human rights abuses and then it'll step in to stop those. Yeah, they might be there diplomatically trying to broker peace, not necessarily picking a side. Um, you also have the corporate states, so they might be in competition with diasporans or they might be fighting amongst themselves. They can have kind of shadow wars and conflicts of that sort. Um, of course, there's also piracy wherever there's trade. So there are people who live on the fringes and decide to prey upon merchants and commerce. And then there's this sense that there is there is just or good war in the galaxy uh, th that it certainly can exist and it's one it's an element of Lancer that I like a lot that you often are kind of missing in some of these war heavy games where you can have union that is in conflict with a local system or you know a local power partly because that local po power encourages or utilizes things like slavery, which is completely against the three pillars and union won't stand for that. So they begin diplomatic relations. If they don't want to become integrated into union or they don't want to, you know, end chattel slavery for whatever reason, the Department of Justice has liberation teams of people in mechs who will land planet side and start a war to free the slaves. Right. Like you can, that can just be who your party is in Lancer. That's awesome. And then there's also just that sense of like, a war is coming like they like the fate of humanity is not yet decided and there will be a conflict that sort of either delivers upon union's vision or proves that it's not viable um just the different factions kind of coming to a head in this moment in history is sort of providing that impending sense yeah it is uh humanity is on a fulcrum right now and we'll right. see which way it swings so some notable places cradle uh the new name of earth this is the center of the union 
This is uh, where Union's government is. Uh, it includes most of the solar system. This is where the technology level is probably the highest. Um, and honestly, you probably only come here for RP purposes. There's not a lot of conflict. Right. There is uh, Caracas, the first colony founded, the capital of the Caracan trade baronies, uh, only recently integrated into Union and still, I think, culturally somewhat divergent, right? Yeah, they're um, a monarchy and the society is divided into different uh, hereditary houses. And you basically need to, you know, prove yourself in this kind of feudal system. And, you know, they also have uh, a serf class. Then there's Rashamra, that's the title-locked planet that has become the home of Harrison Armory. Uh, it's basically a gigantic research and development base uh, under the crust of this planet that is either searing hot or bitter cold. Yeah, it's Argentina for the second committee anthro-chauvinists who escaped after uh, the coup. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you want bad guys, you can look here. Yeah. Uh, there's Karina, which is the ocean world home of IPSN, uh, surrounded by a massive orbital shipyard. Um, IPSN is a shipping company that then became, uh, got into military technology and now also has sort of a mercenary arm. Right. One of the big corpora states. And then there's Honest, which is the capital of the theocratic empire that worships Metot On, which is apparently another monist class non-human person uh, another singularity if you will yeah this was the actually the first one that like was born into existence but wasn't classified first therefore it's known as monist 2 uh yeah nobody really knows that much about it but uh they are sending out a, an attack fleet so yeah it's I called a crusade we'll crusade fleet for something <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then in terms of the power groups, there are, of course, the corporations, the corpora states. So there's general massive systems, which is sort of the union supplier of industrials, uh, including the most basic mechs. There's Harrison Armory, the militarist corpora state, a supplier of arms to basically anybody who's willing to pay, but also uh, the last bastion of the values of the second committee. There is the Smith-Shimano Corpora, uh, SSC, the sort of second most powerful corpora state, mostly due to its presence in the Omninet. It doesn't really hold a lot of physical territory. And they're most interested in, you know, upgrading humanity. They're about as close as you're going to get to transhumanism. But, you know, if you're looking for like a, a neural net uplink or cybernetics, they're your go-to. Yeah, they're basically your uh, Comcast <laughs> or your Verizon, <laughs> right? Like... They're, yeah, those guys are powerful. <laughs> then you have IPSN. They're the oldest corporate state, uh, originally a shipping conglomerate. They monopolized uh, Blink Space for a while and then turned to uh, weapons technology and mech technology. Uh, and then there is Horus, which is your decentralized group of Omninet personalities, memes, codecs, uh, with dubious objectives that is possibly a branched intelligence of Ra. It's it's basically like 4chan um, or QAnon, I guess. Like it's a conspiracy theory that might actually be real on the internet. Right. But isn't actually a particular set of people. Anyone can say I'm with Horus, kind of like anonymous. Right. Now, most players will interact with the corporal states because they make all of the technology that you build your mech from. Uh, and it, there's a sort of a nice um, division between the corporal states as 
players in the RP of the setting versus corporate states as the suppliers of technology. Because just because you may like or dislike Harrison Armory has usually no bearing on whether or not you're going to use systems created by them because with you know 3D printers and, and fabbers and things like that, you can, as long as you get the uh, the plans, you can print them yourself and you don't need you don't need to pay anybody for anything, right? So you know, Horus uh, uploads different, uh, you know, mech schematics uh, onto the OmniNet, and you just need to be a good enough hacker to go find them. Then, of course, there are the political entities. There's the Karakin Trade Baronies, as we mentioned, right? They're a major player in the politics of the universe. Uh, there are the Ungratefuls, who are um, the dissidents within the Trade Baronies, who think that their monopoly and uh, imposed serfdom are immoral and not in, like, in upholding the ideal of union, Hence why the trade baronies call them the ungratefuls, because I can't believe that they don't accept their station. We give them food. We give them shelter. You know, they're basically allowed to govern themselves for the most part as long as they do what we say. Positively Victorian. (laughs) There are the adherents of Ra, which are a uh, religious sect um, separate from uh, the the on, but uh, no less dangerous. Right. They have ties to Horus. Um, and are, depending on who you ask, uh, infiltrating part of the government or, you know, just uh, sort of an, an extant part of the government. They're the loyal wings of the Albatross. These are the pan-galactic space paladins who answer any and all calls from help from uh, all who need it. They're, they have ties to IPSN. Uh, they're typically, though, uh, independent. And... And they're, they're kind of like the platonic ideal of the repercussions of the, of the third trauma, right? Uh, they answer every cry for help simply because humanity was not able to answer thousands of years of distress calls. Then there's the Horizon Collective, which is similar in structure to Horus, but um, has different objectives. So they are more politically active than they are necessarily subversive. Um, they're especially focused on transhumanism and, um, the rights of NHPs. Uh, a lot of times union groups will categorize them as allies of Horus, though they aren't. Um, it's just that they both happen to, uh, live in anonymity. Yeah. If you're looking for a lot of, you know, transhuman, post-human type technology, Lancers doesn't have a lot of that because when Monus once showed up, part of the mm, treaty, basically, uh, for leaving with Demos and not destroying all of Union was stop looking into life extension and post-human technologies and I'll leave you alone. Right. (laughs) Then there's the Mirror Smoke Mercenary Company, MSMC, that's uh, the galaxy's foremost gray-space military contractor. If you need a privateer, if you need a, you know, a quiet job, some wet work, whatever it is, you need a private army to go conquer your neighboring planet, you can hire MSMC. They're the Spari, who are descendants of one of the original 10 generation ships that got knocked off course and ended up on a terrible planet that's basically Hoth. So they're essentially... Space Vikings. Hell yeah, every study needs them. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are the Voladores, or Voladores, I think. Uh, I think it's supposed to have a Spanish pronunciation. Um, but these are the allegedly post-human nomadic traders. They kind of show up, uh, execute commerce, and leave. Uh, they're notable because they never 
are seen outside of their spacesuits, so nobody's actually really sure who or what they are. Um, but there's sort of an insular culture that's based on that sort of tr- uh, wandering trader sort of type. Yeah, they can get you what you want. But Shane, why is this game called Lancer? Yeah, we haven't talked about Lancers at all. None. (laughs) (laughs) So Lancers are your licensed mech pilots that are distinguished as the most bold, the most skilled, or the most daring warriors in the galaxy. These are your top guns. These are your ace combats. These are your, um, you know, it's, it's the title of recognition, right? It is what everyone grows up wanting to be if they want to be a pilot you want to be recognized as a lancer right it's not a position it's slang for being the best at what you do because there are mech pilots all across the galaxy like mechs are used for uh, combat but they're also used for industrial purposes a lancer is someone who has proven themselves to be among the best of the best so we always talk about some plot hooks we'll keep some basic ones here uh answering the call, right? There's a civil war that's erupted in a diasporan system on the verge of joining Union. Uh, You've been sent out there to keep it under, you know, keep it from escalating too far, prove the Union's good intentions, try to help mediate the situation, and if things can't be resolved peacefully, apply some mechs to the problem. And then, of course, there's always the tracking down pirates game. A new ring of pirates is preying on shipping lanes, but They can't be tracked to any known systems. So where is it that they're actually coming from? How are they operating and who are they? Because they don't seem to have any ties to known powers. Are they even human? They're unshackled NHPs, Ishan. That's the reveal. They're always unshackled NHPs. (laughs) So so are two of the members of our party, apparently. Yeah, in secret. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In terms of how to play... Um, we can talk a little bit about the system that's baked into Lancer. So classes are tied to your mech license. Um, so your mech is your class. That's what gives you all of your abilities and, and something of a kind of grid-based 4E-like combat system with roles, powers, um, you know, that, that type of fiddly um, tactical combat. Yeah, the game really splits things up between pilot and mech, between... Um, narrative and combat. You you know have skills as a pilot, the things that you're partic- particularly good at, but those are extremely narrative. Um, you know you'll get a, a small bonus on a on a d20 roll for you know deciding that you're good at you know fighting or hacking or something like that. It, it's actually even more broad than that. And then pretty much everything else is building your mech and figuring out what systems you have access to and what weapons you have and, you know, the range of those weapons and the damage those weapons do. Yeah, in terms of your action resolution, it's going to be similar to Shadow of the Demon Lord. Um, In fact, I think that's what it was based on. But you'll basically roll a d20 and then based on any advantages or disadvantages you have on that roll from your equipment or skills or whatever, you'll roll d6s alongside that uh, and then add the highest d6 value in the pool to your total. Right. Combat is very similar to 4th edition, or at least reminiscent of it. If you played 4E D&D, you basically have a good idea of what you're already doing. There's similar roles. You can be a striker, a controller, a defender, artillery. Um, There are different powers. You can use once per scene, basically once per encounter, or a limited number of times per scene, uh, or at will. Uh, And there are different, there's a similar action economy. You have uh, full actions or quick actions. 
Yeah, and then there's also just a few random tables that you can use to set up inter-party dynamics. Um, several of them are tied to, I think, the the more anime trope of like, it's partially about the combat, right? But like also in between fights, you're here for the romance. Um, you're here for the awkward personal interactions, um, less so about the heroic questing around the galaxy kind of thing. Which is where I think the lore really comes into its own. Um, you don't need to tie everything to mechanics because you don't need to worry about what you're going to eat or how much fuel you have or, you know, how you're going to get somewhere or even necessarily how long it takes or, or you know, how much you're going to get paid. None of that really matters unless you want it to matter. It's much more about philosophy and ideas and ideals. Yeah, it's it's definitely a different type of theme than like your mech warrior right the idea that you're part of a clan that's hard scrabble and fighting for its existence that your equipment needs to be carefully um rationed like managed maintained like generally if you make it back to base you get a chance to fix your stuff if you blow up your mech you can print another one it's just a matter of time and what it costs in your narrative in order to get that done so then naturally, you can always uh, play the game in Lancer using its own system. But if you wanted to look at other systems, where else might you look? I think you're looking at the systems, the sort of universal systems, where you can play pretty much anything that isn't tied to a specific setting. Genesis is probably the one that comes to mind uh, for me if you want something that's kind of crunchy. Um, you've got the narrative elements uh, with the dice, and there are basically a lot of homebrew out there that you can use to emulate uh, Max. Yeah, I think that's probably where I would go to. I probably wouldn't want to do a full reskin in like a PBTA game or something like that. So Genesis is a good start. Otherwise, I don't know, GURPS, <laughs> like, your <laughs> options are limited. Yeah. <laughs> Every I other mean, game is bad. Honestly, what about like uh, Strike, the uh, 4E, like the simplified 4E game, and you just use that for combat and then something super narrative or maybe even no system for the narrative parts of the game? Yeah, but if you're going to play Strike, just play Lancer, right? Like, it's basically <laughs> the same. But but nobody's bought Lancer, Shane. Uh, okay, right, yeah. <laughs> All right, so then the uh, question we uh, ask after each of these episodes, Shane, would you play a Lancer game? Yeah, I'd play a Lancer game for a while. How about you? Uh, I definitely would. Um, I really like the setting i love that you know philosophy is so important uh, ideas and ideals um i love you know near post-human sci-fi uh it'll be interesting to see how long a campaign you can play in lancer because you know license levels are basically equivalent to levels in you know other rpgs and there are only 12 of them and you get a new license level probably every few sessions so that's yeah. like less than a year for an entire game if you're playing every week yeah uh there's also a thing where like the the gamifying hits the lore that kind of isn't my favorite like the idea of like like i understand the concept right license level is your mech and license level is your class and that's where your abilities come from and that ties them all together so that you can't really strip a character of their gear and remove all of their abilities right which is a problem in mech games is that if you lose your mech you lose your level effectively um and so they've tied that to like it's fine you have a license for this thing so you can just print it whenever you want to and then you always have access to it and it's gear but it's only technically gear right um i run into that problem of like okay but then like 
that is just a point of leverage that other people have over you and your access to this thing. Why aren't they doing that? And why are there evil Lancers out there that have the same license level that can go do this? You know, it's like, uh, okay, I, fine. I guess that's a workaround if we all squint at it and just kind of don't don't spend too much time focused on it. But that that's my only gripe with this, which is a very minor gripe in the scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing you have to do anytime you have any sort of utopian society. Like, okay, why is there conflict? Well, let's let's bake in some some bad guys or at least some idealistic differences so that people might fight about something. Yeah, I mean, also, like, in a lot of ways, you're playing cops in this game, right? Like, that's where your resources come from. <laughs> from the government. Right. <laughs> or private military. Right, but, like, if you're using a Horus mech, for example, and, like, you're doing things that are against like you know what i mean it's like there's some some weirdness there like with the corporate states and things like in conflict with other objectives that you might be working on it 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 just doesn't that doesn't strike me as super realistic in the way that so much of this setting feels like hard sci-fi 4chan built a mech what's uh what's weird about that and what could possibly go wrong (laughs) right (laughs) all right did you hear that ishan that's uh the sound of my baylor's nano swarms disassembling me because i wrote the wrong memes no no point in disassembling (laughs) you if we can't build you back better let's move on to the character creation forge and figure out how we do that but before we do let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us we do love hearing from you you can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet us at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation in Discord. There's a link in the show notes. Gather round, travelers, to hear our tale. Venture Maidens is an actual play 5th edition podcast made by four longtime friends and lifetime gamers. We take our role playing as seriously as we keep our bulges tasteful. So if you're looking for an epic high fantasy tale spun by a killer cast, give us a shot. We publish new episodes every other week and live stream our game recordings on Twitch. Now get on out there and download Venture Maidens wherever podcasts are free. Hope to see you in the community, and don't forget to venture away. So this week, we're building the Hard Charger. Shane, what does it do, and what is it? The Hard Charger is the uh, is the character who boldly rushes in and just causes chaos. Uh, he's, a, he's a bowling ball of pain, if you will. This is a, a mech with ramjets. <laughs> yeah, and spikes, <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> All right, what's a the build? Vlad, if you would. <laughs> <laughs> a Zheng. All right, what's the build? It's a Battle Rager Barbarian 13, Alchemist Artificer 7. Okay, interesting spread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we got around the traditional problem with barbarians and spellcasters and that you can't use your spells when you're in combat. Uh, cool thing about alchemists, they use their spells to make their potions before combat. All right, so if Barbarian gets you uh, Rage, Unarmored Defense, Reckless Attack for advantage on your melee attacks, and Danger Sense for advantage on your deck saving throws. At third level, you'll get your Battle Rager Armor, that's Spiked Armor, uh, which does three damage on a successful grapple, and then also allows you to make an attack with your spikes as a bonus action for D4 damage. I mean, since technically only a Dwarf can be a Battle Rager, a Dwarf and Alchemist Battle Ranger may 
Bridger makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> this all tracks. It's just int-based instead of wisdom-based. Like, that's your mental stat, right? You get extra attack and 10 extra feet of movement, which also is very helpful because you're that dwarf. Right. At 6th level, you'll get Reckless Abandon, which gives you some temp HP anytime you Reckless Attack. Uh, at 7th level, you get Feral Instinct, so you have advantage on initiative and can act normally even when surprised. At 9 and 13, you get additional dice on crits. At 10, Battle Rager Charge, you dash as a bonus action while you're raging. And at 11, Relentless Rage. Uh, it starts at a DC 10 con saving throw when you drop to zero hit points. You make that save and uh, you drop to one instead. And then each time that happens, uh, before a short rest, the DC increases by five. This is a great way to probably get, I don't know, three to four more lives per combat. Right. <laughs> And then uh, as an alchemist, uh, you will get first and second level spells. Of course, you can't cast those while raging. Uh, at second level, you get infusions, which allows you to, en to enchant your non-magical items. Um, this is a great way to harden up that spiked armor, to add mobility with, uh, with some of those items, give yourself some stealth. Whatever you need to do, you can kind of fix that with infusions. And you've got experimental elixirs. You can drink it in advance uh, if you know that you're about to have a combat or you can hand it out to your party members. It basically pre-casts your spells because, of course, you can't do that while you're raging. Yeah, and then you can actually create extra elixirs from the, the stock one per long rest by channeling your spell slots into those elixirs. So you literally aren't dependent on casting. Of course, you can also heal after combat if you need to. <laughs> Uh, then at fifth level, you'll get Alchemical Savant that puts your int bonus, uh, or your int bonus is a bonus to a healing or damage spell roll uh, that's going to be primarily used for healing. Um, at level six, you'll get tool expertise, so you'll have um, expertise in any tool. You're a dwarf that tracks. Um, and then at level seven, you'll get Flash of Genius that uh, gives you your int bonus to a creature's ability check or saving throw int times per long rest. I think this is brewer's tools and uh, tiny little bottles of, of booze. Little flasks is what I'm handing out. <laughs> that checks. Um, in terms of leveling order, I would probably start with three levels of alchemist, then take, uh, might as well just take all the levels of barbarian, honestly, and then finished out your alchemist. All right, before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you do that, we will read it on the air, and that will help other people find us. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are talking about playing kobolds. And in the character creation forge? We're building the weather balloon. Is that the thing where you throw kobolds out of a balloon, and if they're wet when they hit the ground, it's raining? Probably, yes. Uh, <laughs> but also trebuchet works fine. Okay. <laughs> well, that's it for episode 259 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.